and once again, I'm not trying to demonize here, but I wish in particular in the US, settler colonial society, I wish white folks were more humble with respect to finding answers to the challenges and problems that we end up facing. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to Surviving Society. This is episode one of season 12. Oh my days, I can't believe we're entering our 12th season. We were actually not supposed to record this season until later in the year. So actually, we're talking to you now on the 13th of January, and we weren't actually supposed to be recording until February. We were taking a prolonged break because we've been working very hard at Surviving Society HQ. But because of recent political events, we decided to bring this episode forward because of what happened on the 6th of January 2021. We saw an attempted insurrection on Capitol Hill. Trump is obviously being moved out of power and Joe Biden is now the president-elect. Next week is the inauguration of Joe Biden and Trump's supposed to be leaving. So at this stage, we don't actually know what's going to be happening next week. All we know is there was arguably, possibly, we're going to talk it through with our guests now on the show, and attempted what some people are saying coup, but we can debate that a little bit as to whether it was that or not, because it seems like both sides maybe benefited from what went down. Our guest was due to come on later in the year, but we've moved it forward because we want to try and talk about his excellent book in relation to what happened last week. So very, very warm welcome again to Levi Gaiman. Hi, Chantel. Hi, Tisa. It's, it's wonderful to be back on the aptly named Surviving Society. Thank you so much for joining us. Just to remind our listeners, Levi is the author of Land, God and Guns, Settler Colonialism and Masculinity in the American Heartland. What we're going to be doing today is talking about chapter five in Levi's book, which is titled Frontier, Family and Nation, and how some of the arguments of that chapter relate to the current political climate, particularly with regards to the possible leaving of office of Trump next week. So Levi, I guess it would be really good to start the show by telling us a bit about the book in general, um, your motivations for writing the book, and then we can get into the more nitty gritty as to that chapter and how it speaks to this moment. The book is effectively came out early 2020, stems from my PhD work, and it's effectively 10 years of engaged research ethnographic methods across several different states in the American heartland, Kansas, Iowa, Missouri, Oklahoma, Nebraska, parts of Colorado, in which I ended up talking to predominantly white working class guys um, about effectively the realities, their belief systems, their core values, um, what was important to them, but then too with a a specific focus on masculinity or practices of manhood or what is it um, that signals or signifies manhood to them. Um, And then the framing of it is predominantly also an anti-colonial take um, on American nationalism, American uh, masculinity, um, as well as even ongoing colonial social relations. And so the book, I think the key thing that it recognizes or or I attempted to uh, explicitly foreground from the outset is that the United States from, I think, an anti-colonial or even Fanonian standpoint, white settlers colonial society based upon a foundation of attempted genocide, stolen land, enslavement, persistent racialism, um, and even heteropatriarchy. And so recognizing that the United States is an active and ongoing settler colonial context um, with a foundation of structural white supremacy. It's a bit sensitive to kind of talk about white supremacy and that's sort of why I flag structural white supremacy having said, so it's sort of institutions and systems rooted in and based upon white superiority. Um, Having said that in sort of 
um, overtly recognizing institutions and systems and even social relations being colonial, securing settler futures at the expense of indigenous people, at the expense of other negatively racialized people, um, as well as at the expense of other people who are defined differently in terms of race, class, gender, sexuality. I mean, even religion. I think religion's a key foundation, also a, a linchpin issue to look at. Um, but recognizing it's an active colonial context and that some of the flashpoint instances of violence and outburst, uh, as well as even Trump, um, the Trump administration itself, has a through line that's centuries old and is basically, we can look back at the historical trajectory, settler colonialism, I would even say frontier masculinity, as well as even liberal ideology to get a sense of these spikes of violence, uh, the riots that are taking place, um, and right now we're talking on January 13th. It's unlikely that they're over. And it seems like based upon kind of chatter that you're hearing on different outlets that there might be also right-wing groups mobilizing, maybe arming themselves. These things are all linked to colonial worldviews, colonial institutions um, that are arguably illegitimate and that uh, what's taking place amongst the Democrats, the Republicans, as well as the continuum of perspectives that fall under those two um, mainstream parties ends up effectively securing a settler colonial future. Um, so the book is basically looking at that, but then also looking at, in particular, masculinity, as well as gendered social relations, primarily in the heartland. And then once again, um, I, should, I guess I should mention this, it's, it's effectively uh, a critique um, as well as, as going back home. So I just went to, I grew up in rural Southeast Kansas, that's traditional or ancestral Osage territories. I'm a white settler from Kansas, but then basically sort of engaging in some introspection as I ended up learning things along the way. As I ended up being exposed to more political education and political dissidents or people who were upset with the status quo, whether they're from uh, reservations, indigenous people sort of critiquing the state or being in grad school and seeing black activists mobilize, or even, I mean, even sort of white anarchists and food not bombs, sort of questioning things, engaging in some introspection and just basically like, well, maybe we should hold up a mirror to ourselves before we, we move forward and basically start to posit or suggest that we have answers to the problem, problems that are sort of defining uh, the contemporary moment. So it's effectively me going back home, trying to be compassionate as well as understanding and recognize the humanity and dignity of all the participants, but also engaging in some very difficult topics too that you, you, you see in the contemporary moment with respect to kind of the rhetoric as well as behavior and belief systems of Trump voters. You can go back home to where I'm from and you'll see what we call side-by-sides or like golf carts with Trump flags and, and wearing a mask has become political, these sorts of things. And just talking to people and basically sort of saying, how did we arrive at these values? Because I, I maintain some of those core values growing up as well. Um, I've since departed from them, sort of kind of on this journey and process, but then it's just basically some self-reflection. And then too, also just basically growing up and kind of masculinity, not necessarily being talked about overtly, but masculinity being very pervasive. And so it's just kind of always having to prove ourselves as men. What do men do? What do men not do? Don't Tread Me was worn by some of the people that stormed the hill. And so the idea of this guy, of this individual that sits in the heartland before the kind of mythic past, the image that came into my head was someone sitting in the rural space of America fighting against the industrial north. It kind of had shades of the kind of civil war about it. And this, to me, is a reflection. What's happening in Capitol Hill and all this stuff that's happening in America is a reflection or an outgrowth of the civil war. The South was rural, poorer. And it had that kind of rugged, individualized kind of ethos that sits there, and that, that kind of masculine Christianity. The idea that the man was at the top. And so, when I hear people like Tucker Carlson, this is who they're speaking to. Your book kind of points in that direction. This is in the American story, rather, is this kind of outgrowth of this of the Civil War still? This hasn't been resolved. Just to give the listeners 
a little bit of an introduction. Basically, Levi's talking about in this chapter the relationship between men, their family, and protecting their family and gun ownership and the nation. And what I think is really interesting about this chapter is I think it speaks quite well to Patricia Hill Collins' work on the family as well. Kind of speaks that, and also a bit of Bell Hooks as well is definitely intertwined within how the family becomes a sort of microclimate or micro political relationships of how the nation is made and that's through exclusion racism heteropatriarchy i think you've hit the nail on the head and then too with some of the things that tisa's talking about it's it's uncanny how how seemingly far off history is but it's actually far more closer as as well as the aftermaths of history are still with us because tisa with what he's talking about i mean the united states or the settler colonial imagination it's always been a frontier or terra nullius empty land so it's this sort of deracination an uprooting of indigenous people it's always been empty land and it's been a frontier to conquer and dominate pioneers homesteading we're kind of talking about home place bell hook's notion of this but then for i think white settlers it was far more about we're going to homestead this is our empty land we also manifest destiny it's a doctrine of discovery all of these things will sort of unfold across this untamed frontier and it's up to us as rational civilized people to spread civilization to homestead to engage in sedentary agriculture and to basically bring this backwards archaic land as well as these backwards archaic people into civilization and sort of teach them way uh, that being used as a pretext to basically say part of our religious mission then too is this civilizing project and so not only do we have terra nullius, we also, and this was sort of a doctrine even from the mid 1500s, anima nullius. And so it's effectively empty land. Anima nullius is effectively from the colonial imagination that we've got negatively racialized others that we're encountering when we go out and colonize or when we go out and quote unquote explore. Anima nullius is effectively this doctrine as a papal bull that was issued by the church. And it was basically saying, well, there are uh, being sentient beings out there on this land and then so it's effectively a big debate happens and takes place and it's effectively well do they have souls or do they not have souls and this was sort of the debate and about colonialism all throughout the caribbean through latin america as well as the rest of the americas the edict was anima nullius. they have souls but they're empty and if they're not willing to have them filled up with christianity then it follows through that if you kill or enslave or dominate a sentient being that has a soul, but it's empty, it's technically not a sin. And so then you have negatively racialized others who can be saved if they're conscripted into and can be baptized and become Christian, or more maybe more appropriately, if they can become white, then they can exist. And so these doctrines of empty land as well as empty souls provided a pretext for 500 years of ongoing racialism as well as dispossession it follows through with enslavement all that was part of this colonial enterprise of settlement of homesteading as well as then accumulating acquiring wealth and then nation building right and so it's just basically we'll build this new nation based upon the civilizing project one of the things i picked up in, from reading that chapter is the idea of work and work linked to religion it's a, so, what is a certain type of work again chantel's gonna say that's my guy it's looking to like Weber and the Protestant work ethic, right? So it's a yeah. it's a form of it's a form of work that's linked to the Protestant work ethic. Work becomes disembodied. So work once it becomes racialized, it applies to hard work or field work applies to black people, but rational, mindful work belongs to the white man in building the nation. This course is carried forward today, and it's quite interesting to see some of the. Uh, some of the some of the rhetoric that's been given from the far right is about white people do work we created the world or western civilization we created this nation any other people's work is discounted so that physical work that building the roads that was your role that wasn't ordained by god or the, the divine plan real work is what we do i feel like both of your contributions there really speak to the complicated and complexities and intertwined nature of race and class 
and also the category of the human as well like that's what I feel like what you were just talking about there Levi like who like it's possible for me to become human there needs to be a negotiation with religion but there also needs to be a negotiation with capitalism that entry into human being is partial it's static it's not complete so it's changeable the way you talk about it in relation to yes yeah, so that set of colonialism and the colonial mind is just it really does bring home those race and class who is allowed to be human you can become human if you fit a very particular and insular way of being human sylvia winter talking about bourgeois rational christian male and yeah. there are the terms and conditions under which you get to become conscripted into humanity if not if you refuse then you'll suffer the consequences um, and then we're going to have a nation built on this. We're going to build institutions based on these notions. Now, it's not as reductive as that because there are it, it's mutable in some ways or people can shapeshift to a certain degree or they can make some concessions um, and become complicit. Maybe it's through self-preservation, who, who knows, but then too, it becomes a bit messy. At the heart of the institutions that are present in the United States, I think is precisely that logic. And then if they're threat, yeah, if they're threatened by statements like Black Lives Matter or indigenous people sort of rethinking relationships with land or mobilizing against extractive industries, then that becomes a threat to what I would call colonial capitalism. And so, I mean, even in the book, I start out early trying to basically affix colonialism with capitalism and refer to it as colonial capitalism. But I think, yeah, you, exactly what you're talking about. But I think one of the common themes that keeps coming up and I've only picked this up recently, is the idea of theft, stealing. That colonial mindset, it understands that it's an imposition. So if you look at the, the rhetoric, stop the steal, the rhetoric for Brexit, they're trying to steal your country away from you. This idea that somehow something's being taken away and I need to protect it. And so this is where the idea of guns are being very masculine because this is what it's about. The idea that we know it's something is stolen because this narrative comes up when I look through the historical record, it's all about someone coming to take to your land or taking your jobs away from you. So there is something within the colonial mindset that tells you that at some kind of primal level, they understand it's stolen and it has to be defended at all costs. Be that be stealing our women, stealing our jobs, stealing our education. This idea of theft is central in the most recent formulation of it is stop this deal. You're stealing the vote. You're stealing democracy. Yeah. And now we're fighting for it. And it's a, it's a very strange thing to see. So it's a, there's an understanding somewhere that this is an imposition. The colonial mindset is an imposition that has to be defended at all costs. Sometimes going beyond the rule of law is necessary to protect this. No, this is it. And there's no shortage of cruel historical irony sort of claiming someone's stealing from me, in particular white settlers making that statement. The way you talk about how liberalism makes possible these politics and these feelings of being mobilized on the basis of being quote unquote left behind or, or the elites using this language. And it's it is through notions of liberalism. And I'm I'm gonna make I'm gonna say something here to listeners, which I'm not ashamed to say because I do feel like I'm constantly a student of political theory, politics in general, like I'm always asking Tiso some of the most basic questions about some like terminology. It was only in more recent years, but I fully understood what liberalism actually was. Basically, used to use it. And there might actually be in one of our very first episodes, me saying, oh, well, I'm liberal, like I don't mind. Like me sort of using it in a very colloquial way, very like sort of free way as well, something that I thought was free, but every, everyone can just do what they want. And I didn't really understand what it was and what it makes possible obviously I do now but what you talk about in this chapter is how liberalism is integral to rugged individualism which means that people feel like they have a right to own a gun and that is because they need to protect their family their wealth their private property but we use so many so many people that would say that they are against notions of violence gun ownership all that stuff would say that that's not what liberalism is but liberalism is integral to making those people how they feel possible but what you do in the book is I think you make really clear the connections between those, that political ideology and how important that is for the far right. I think you're being far too modest and humble with how well versed you are with liberalism. <laughs> I was the same way. And in the States, the term liberal is used. I mean, outside of the States, it's used in a different way than it is in the States. Yeah, 
yeah do you know what I think basically I got my definition from liberalism from films or tv and I thought and obviously a lot the most of the films and tv I watch are Americans so you have Labour conservative and you have the one in the middle and the one in the middle, it has that neutral value, right? So it has no values attached to it. So people, it almost seems harmless. But it's only when you start reading the political philosophy of liberalism, you understand it. It underpins yeah. basically mo- most things that you do, the ownership, private property and all this kind of stuff. But I think, yeah. Exploitation, I think, no, yeah. I think what you see is, again, it's a kind of a popified version of liberalism. It's what you see in Sex and the City or something quite cosmopolitan. I obviously grew up in the 90s and noughties did become very interested in politics and quite embarrassed in the young age but I grew up when the Liberal Democrats in the UK were more left-wing than the Labour Party so like my understanding of of Liberal Democrats in the UK was like yeah Paddy Ashdown and all that like they were the ones that were sort of saying quite they didn't want Iraq I obviously I didn't have a critical gaze a critical mind when it came to politics when I was when I was growing up it wasn't taught in that way that's another thing that sort of meant that I didn't really understand what liberalism was until yeah in more recent years so it's very much how it's approached in the states in that if you're not a republican you're typically defined oh you're a democrat or a liberal and but to me but then too it does sort of more appropriate I think sort of liberalism as an ideology puts forth a a set of principles that's sort of about it's primary focus is on the individual, its primary focus is on private property. My take is that liberal ideology is colonial authoritarian ideology masquerading as being the moderate center. In many respects, I think it's quite dangerous. And that too, I think you see in the United States where it's just basically like if we think that returning to the moderate center and there's hope in Joe Biden and liberals and Democrats, I think it's a very dangerous path. Now, that's not to say that Trump and uh, authoritarian, explicit authoritarian fascisms um, not going to bring about more grievous harm than Joe Biden. I think voting for Joe Biden was an exercise in harm reduction as well as being tactical. Um, But I don't think it's a pathway to liberation. I don't think there's any hope for emancipatory future or healthful and sustainable social relations by voting for um, moderate liberals. Um, And in effect, it's sort of like mentioned before, masquerading, it's authoritarianism masquerading as uh, enlightenment. The The link though to me that liberal ideology has with colonial social relations is sort of, is, is the preservation of private property. And then to me, the way that, I mean, you sort of see the defensiveness as well as the stand your ground and, and um, heavily weaponized uh, population in the United States. It's that's sort of, to me, the offshoot of extreme liberalism in that it's effectively you're responsible for yourself. Here's this open frontier. We have a we, we sense that the world is nasty, brutish and short, and we're engaging in a bit of social Darwinism and survival of the fittest arm yourselves, this is empty land, dominate those others who get in your way, and here's a pretext and a rationale for doing that, enslave them because this is sort of uh, how you accumulate wealth, and then you must defend your property, stand your ground, protect your house, protect your throne, these sorts of things. But then too, I I think the necessary thing to realize about that is that extreme individualism and self-centrism and sort of focusing on private property completely severs people from any sense of community or even any sense of being a part of the society. And it's sort of basically, we don't have a dog in that fight. That's not our problem. We're not responsible for others. We're only responsible for ourselves. And the upshot of that is effectively a highly defensive, I think, self-centric society. Um, and I don't want to be too homogenizing in these statements because there, is a, there are very community-oriented as well as communal social relations that exist in the United States. Agrarian socialism was very present in Kansas early on. It uh, didn't have a critique of kind of colonialism, but it was still there. But then too, it's effectively liberal ideology, very much foregrounding the role of the individual, denying that society exists, as well as then very much talking about, this is about you and your individual pursuit of happiness, liberty, individual freedom, as well as private property. 
And these are the um, belief systems that we've installed. And then we'll basically make rules and laws that uphold them as well as preserve that system. And then you can be guided accordingly. And then it's effectively, there's no uh, more effective way to create a very defensive, distrustful, I think, fractured society than basically saying the basic unit of our existence is extreme individualism and self-centrism. Maybe we extend that to the family, but it doesn't really go any, anywhere further than that. Something that we cover a lot on this show is how do we talk about whiteness, race and class without playing into narratives of the left behind and how do we recognise that certain groups are marginalised? It's not because they are white, it's because of class, it's because of structure. Very complicated discussion, but one we feel like there are answers to. And I'm just going to read a passage actually from your book if that's okay it's perfectly fine before the paragraph basically one of the things that i think was really interesting about the people that we know now are at capitol hill how that relates to some of the different violences that we've seen in the uk um so for example we had the counter protests well i hate calling them protests what can i call them to black lives matter and lots of people that are sort of like-minded to us want a free future for everyone we're sort of talking about these groups as if they are working class white people that were hostile towards black people racialized people they're islamophobic and they're that's what they're like but what we know is that that group is an invention and a lot of the people that you will find that are claiming white power are actually middle class and they're people that have got security, they're people that have got money, they're people that they have ownership. What unites them is not necessarily that they are white. The commentaria and po- politicians in general don't don't say that. And I think what we saw at Capitol Hill was a very similar story. You kind of get that narrative, that discourse, that demonization, when actually what we know is that these are like ex-military, like they're from people that have got money like people like bought like private jets to get them there anyway I digress I'm going to read that I'm going to read this section because I think it is fire and then Levi you speak on it white masculinity remains obscured is safeguarded and can either comfortably go unnoticed or be deployed as imperiously as impossible because it is the baseline identity against which all others are measured. This is not to say people who engender white masculinity cannot experience hardship or suffering along other intersecting lines. It simply demonstrates that white masculinity is not being superficially targeted and structurally repressed because it is white. That paragraph, I feel like, not only does it does it really highlight a massive issue that we have in politics today, locally within the UK context, but obviously broadly within the American context, but also it speaks to a real issue that we have within sociology and social sciences as well. Oh, I appreciate that. The, the far too kind words. That you have. <laughs> but uh, my sense with that, I'm primarily concerned with trying to build solidarity across, across incommensurate struggles. Yeah. And so it's not to demonize or vilify sort of a character or an archetype of a working class, white, bigoted racist. But it's effectively, too, I went back home and it's sort of like, we need some deep introspection and then collective examination of conscious here. And there are guys back home uh, who are alienated, who are struggling, um, who are suffering deaths of despair and sort of rising mortality rates, these sorts of things. But my sense, or um, kind of what you find out if you sort of start to disaggregate the statistics and look at everything, it's not because they're white. They're being repressed and exploited, um, as well as suffering alienation. My sense is because of colonial capitalism, as well as the way that they're compromised, as well as exploited under capitalist social relations. But then to me, the critical question is, what is an appropriate response to that? And the diabolical thing to me about the colonial capitalist state that is the United States is that it has this trump card, pun intended, I guess, um, but even beforehand, called nationalism. And so it's effectively basically like we'll inculcate and conscript people into a sense of shared um, cultural unity, call it nationalism, 
And then people won't necessarily focus on class consciousness or the inherent racial worldviews, as well as racialism that ends up defining our society. We're all American. You're hardworking folks there. And even though you're struggling, if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and kind of engage in this rugged individualistic Protestant work, work ethic, put your head down, then you'll be okay. And what, what the problem you're facing is, as, real, as well as why you're suffering, is because other people, others, quote unquote, aren't working as hard as you, or they're trying to suck off the system, or they're parasites. And we know this because if you look, you've got these archetypes of the welfare queen or the migrant stealing a job, all these stereotypes and scapegoats that end up existing because of a lack to me of class consciousness. And so then it's effectively basically saying, yes, there's massive alienation and we have evidence of that and there's widespread suffering. How do we recognize that, not discount it? But then also, how do we raise critical consciousness to basically say, we need to be responding in more appropriate ways, as well as identifying the actual in enemy, um, as well as the actual things that's exploiting us. It's not necessarily the scapegoats sometimes that we think they are. Um, and then two, it's sort of, sort of white working class men aren't a monolith. There's some very progressive ones, kind of wrote about some of them in the book. But then two, who's ultimately responsible for reproducing the systems of domination that exist um, that are rooted in racial worldviews as well as their uh, perpetuating heteropatriarchy. And there's plenty of middle class and upper class white men to blame for those things with respect to exploitation. So then it's effectively sort of saying, here is your struggle. The things you're experiencing in the way of alienation, exploitation and suffering isn't because you're white, even though you are suffering those things. Having said that, there are other negatively racialized groups who are also experiencing alienation, exploitation because of their race. And so race is at the heart of this. And it's effectively saying you're in many respects being exploited, alienated, oppressed by the same system. But there's fractious social relations amongst these things. I think nationalism ends up becoming a part of that. And then two sort of the media's uh, a part of that with respect to kind of we get in our echo chambers and we're told and our feelings of being persecuted and suffering or blamed on another group and uh, that's sort of done under the auspices of being patriotic patriotic, and being uh, nationalistic and then it sort of distracts us from identifying the actual point source of exploitation. And so then it's effectively how do we take race seriously? How do we take white privilege seriously? How do we sort of take seriously as well as earnestly recognize this is a settler colonial context and colonial social relations are predicated upon dividing and conquering and, and primarily is also race as well as it distorts and skews gender relations. And so we have these different hierarchies, we have these different um, fractured groups um, that are struggling in different ways and in incommensurate ways and what is the way that they can get united and sort of overcome these things collectively but then too it's it's, it's effectively kind of collective there, that's a bit of a scare word because that's one step away from socialism and we can't have this again i was looking back at the history of the united states this fractious nature always existed so you have the in bacon's rebellion so you have working class black and white people indentured servants all at the same level all willing to rebel against the indigenous indian people they still couldn't find that unity there was still that race that separated them so in virginia you had the kind of laws that separate the black and the white afterwards and that kind of stays in that place. So they have the idea that now, even though we have the same economic interests, what separates us is race now. These laws become encoded and embedded after they kind of, in Virginia, after that particular point. The idea there's a separation between them as races, but you might have the same economic conditions, but racially you're, you're different. My, no, my sister is effectively, that's the diabolical thing about settler colonial, I mean, any, any colonial geography. When you build social institutions, based upon racialism, it, mm -hmm. those racial tensions as well as racial divides end up being very durable. Even when, when there are possibilities and potentials for 
creating better futures as well as better, better presence for differential groups by working together. You're up against institutions as well as social relations that are firmly rooted and have been established by colonial worldviews that basically foster division. And, so, and they become it's sort of, very, those are very hard to topple. One of the things that's actually really challenging about these conversations about race and class and whiteness as well, and yeah, the connections between institutions, colonialism, is people's everyday experiences. And I know before, like, again, we've spoken about this so much on the show, but I think it's really important to just keep repeating because it's very much something that a lot of us have to negotiate. But people will be like, well, yes, we have this shared alienation with these groups. So I'm talking about black people, people of colour that are talking about um, their experiences with some of the men that you interviewed, um, Levi. And they'll be like, yes, we understand we've got a shared um, experience, a, a shared class experience, a shared experience of being exploited by capitalism. But when it comes down to it, these people abuse me. Um, they cause me harm, whether that's in my interpersonal life. You're telling me that these people aren't my enemy, yet they consistently tell me that I'm their enemy, even though their enemy are the elites or the people that have got the power that are not the same class as them they might have the same skin color as them but those are the people that are exploiting them yet they consistently think that i am and i feel like even though we've got decades hundreds of years of scholarship which tells us that the relationship between working class people and the unification of working class people is what what is needed but i feel like we are more than ever losing that battle of trying to get a sort of an understanding between different racialized groups on that and in particular other people of color people of color and white people that have got a shared class very much shared class experience and a shared experience of exploitation of, from capitalism because that mobilization of ethnicity of whiteness of nationalism it's a high point again T, would you say the highest point in your life? Obviously, it's the highest point in my lifetime. You know, I'm not going to say the highest. I'm going to say it's different, man. Like, the way this one makes me feel, I feel scared. The mm. fear is obviously the power, the violence, and what we're seeing. But also, my other fear is that that solidarity is becoming more and more difficult because when it comes down to it, in your everyday life, a lot of my working class and white peers aren't necessarily treating their um, peers that are people of colour in a way that is that treats them like human and I know I'm being sort of homogenizing slightly but it is I do really feel like although me and T will consistently try and push back against that and be like this is why that's happening that's why that's happening this is how we can tackle that I've it's getting harder I think it's getting harder because I don't also don't want it to seem like we're not taking seriously the complaints about that and I think even reading the book like even reading your book um Levi and some of the extracts and some of the quotations from some of the men that you spent time with the working class and white men and some of the things some of the sexism Islamophobia the anti-semitism like it is it's, it is hard it's hard to read it like yeah. even though we know that it's, it's happening because people are scapegoated like that's why it happens but it does, it is still, it's it's, com, it's challenging. No, this is it. I know you have incredibly valid points. And I don't think there's no reason to dance around that because to me, it's effectively white folks yeah. hold the center and the center never holds things fall apart. And th this is, the I think, the difficult thing. It's basically time. I, and this is where I, I, I think I mentioned this in the book towards the end. It's To me, it's incumbent upon white settlers, and maybe if they're not in a settler colonial geography, white folks, engage in deep collective examination of conscious. And, and basically, it's incumbent upon us to basically say, how do we overcome the repression and division and fractured social relations and, and suffering, widespread incommensurate suffering that's happening? Mm -hmm. And if we're honest about that, and earnestly want those things to change, then it's going to be incumbent upon us to make some sacrifices. It's a very difficult thing. It's because it's basically like, a lot of folks want a virtue signal when there's nothing to lose. Um, and I'm down with the cause yeah. if I can signal that, but I don't actually want to sacrifice anything. And I think this is the difficult thing. Sacrifices aren't fun. 
Um, and when you're when you're on the center, when when you are the norm against which everyone, it's just basically it's very comfortable. So we're comfortable, we're privileged, we're the center. This is our thing, and it's just basically like, listen, if we want to recognize the dignity of everyone, and we want safer, more secure, healthful futures for everyone, we're going to have to make some sacrifices. And when I say we, I mean white folks. That's the unfortunate reality. That's a very tough pull and a very difficult thing to get critical mass and collective agreement on at this point, particularly because those divisions are being stoked in such inflammatory ways. And then Chantel, I think you mentioned a very key thing there because one of my other interests, and this is something that I came on to a little bit later after when I was studying masculinity the past five years or so, is you, you were mentioning the everyday. Um, and then too, I, I mean, even what's at the heart of the podcast. And so to me, two, two, two potential areas or two domains of life or where there's fertile ground to change thing is social reproduction, the way we're socially reproducing each other. What are our everyday social relations looking like? And then political education. And I don't think that we're going to get out of this racial tension as well as class stratification and sort of prioritizing patriotism and nationalism over um, multiracial solidarity and class solidarity unless we start politically educating society on mass from a very early age as well as if we don't drastically rethink the way we're socially reproducing each other and the way that our everyday social interactions are unfolding and so what are our gender relations what are we teaching young men what are we disavowing what are we denying or ex-nomination, like uh, indigenous scholars, um, when I was sort of reading about structural white supremacy, sort of talk about ex-nomination. What's not talked about? What do we not mention? We're not mentioning structural white supremacy. We're not mentioning who's going to have to make sacrifices here. We're not mentioning sort of um, what, what do we lose by not talking about some of these things? And so it's effectively, our everyday social relation, because I, I mean, I, I have no, I don't want to be too cynical here. I have no faith that the colonial capitalist state is going to ever change society. And then it's effectively, how do we go about doing that? Well, it's a long march through the institutions. I, I think the institutions are far more domesticating and it's basically trying to get, it's, it's like trying to bargain with quicksand, not to suffocate people. And so then it's basically, what do we do? It's, it's up to us. And it's effectively, well, how do, what then is the pathway to far more sustainable and just future as well as uh, a, a society in which everyone's dignity is recognized? And to me, it's political education and rethinking and revaluing social reproduction because social reproduction has been under attack by capitalist logics um, for years yeah. now. The idea of sacrificing something means a loss of power. And in history, the losing party get treated badly. They're enslaved, they're raped, they're killed, they're murdered, they're submissive. That's the Western historical memory there. So to change that mindset, that if you change the idea of power, how, how we view power, how power is shared, how it's viewed, is that social reproduction there? That's part of the solution. But also just on your point there, T, I completely agree with you. And just sort of linking that to masculinity, I think one of the things that, we can put at the forefront of our political education and obviously there's plenty of writers and scholars that have been doing this for decades and decades but is that masculinity itself is very very harmful to men and women it doesn't liberate it's a cage we have to work out a way of Tiso talking about the collective memory the collect and westernized heteropatriarchal masculine memory and showing how that in itself is not something to aspire to because these are the harms that it's done even to the individuals that it claims it's looking after or prioritizing the most i'm watching the crown almost right so the crown the, the crown he's <laughs> <laughs> been watching the crown Tiso, tell them Tell the listeners, right, listen, listeners, I said to T, right, yeah. me and George, our executive producer, said to T, T, you need to watch The Crown. We think you'll like it because T is obviously our resident history buff. And he was like, no, 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 Right. And Lo then they got me. I, I watched The Crown. Boom. I'm not going to lie. Man's, <laughs> man was kind of hooked. I was like, yeah. Boom. But listen, but this is the idea, the idea of winning. So like Thomas Paine said, like, they were a bunch of robbers, but by robbing and stealing, they became the winners and they entrenched privilege. You can hold privilege. When you are a winner, 
you're not the other side. So you'll sacrifice human human history show that we can sacrifice our feelings just to win. We can live by someone dying. And yeah. you can live by next door someone who's like in abject poverty as long as you're not them. And that that seems that has been a kind of an overriding arch in human history across all cultures that you can live next to someone in some like harsh conditions as long as you're not them. And so how do we go past this? How do we move past that? No, I I I agree wholeheartedly when it comes to kind of how do we overcome I it's sort of these I, I think one of the problems is hierarchies, gender hierarchies, racial hierarchy. How do we how do we abolish hierarchies? And then two, it, I think at the heart of the conversation too, it's competition, survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. And then you can look at uh, different anarcho-communist theorists, uh, Peter Kropotkin, and he did these studies on animals and nature. And it's effectively um, species that cooperate more end up surviving longer rather than the ones that are competing more. And so then it's just basically how do we create social relations in which we're voluntarily cooperating with each other, freely associating with communities and, and being a part of society, uh, as well as engaging in mutual aid rather than this is my property. I'm rugged individualistic um, <laughs> defending it. And this is the frontier in my homestead and I must protect my family. Um, and the, the family's important, don't get me wrong on there, but it's effectively, how, how do we, and this is, I mean, it comes down to political education and social reproduction. How do we develop everyday social relations that are far more rooted in care and compassion and cooperation than competition and this is my property and defending it, these sorts of things. And I mean, the watchword for me, and I don't know if this is controversial, I hope it's don't star on Twitter because of this, but um, like I think the, the watchword for me and the virtue from which all revolutionary possi possibilities flow from is, is being humble or humility. And then to me, it's effectively, I, I will explicitly state, and once again, I'm not trying to demonize here, but I wish in particular in the US, settler colonial society, I wish white folks were more humble with respect to finding answers to the challenges and problems that we end up facing in our everyday social relations. And I think, but that's very difficult because if we are, I mean, this links to masculinity. If you're chasing hegemonic status, or if you don't want to be marginalized, or if you don't want to be subordinated, then being humble doesn't necessarily make you sort of quote unquote, the alpha, alpha male or top dog. And that's sort of a hit of dopamine and it's great for a second, but then you're, you're knocked down very quickly. So then Chantel, like you were saying, this is, this is a trap and this is a never ending pursuit that's exhausting. And oftentimes too kind of chasing this ends up being debilitating physically, mentally, spiritually. And, but it's sort of just basically, I need to assert this. I need to prove myself, whether it's consumption or sexuality or physicality or what have you when it comes to kind of chasing a particular status or kind of being seen as I got to prove myself here. And I, I grew up amidst that. And I don't think it's ever any, anything um, people in society completely transcend. But then too, it's just basically like, what if we did rethink masculinity? I, I sort of propose that we just sort of get rid of it in, in the book <laughs> and, then, and, and to, and rethink our social relations. And then two, I would sort of say, what would, and I, and I sort of link this back to kind of, I don't want to hope this isn't too off topic, but um, like I find the Zapatistas to be very inspiring. Who was I, Levi? Sorry. In primarily indigenous Maya group in Chiapas, Mexico that started organizing in the early eighties, but then they rebelled and took up arms against the, against capitalism. They declared war on neoliberalism in 1994, January 1st, 1994. Since then, though, have, from my perspective, have been prioritizing rethinking and revaluing social reproduction, as well as practicing autonomy. They have the audacity to live outside of the state, to, to, to carve an existence outside of capitalist social relations. And they've been doing that through, I mean, they've incorporated women's revolutionary law. Um, they have their own autonomous system of governments. They have their own autonomous education system. 
these sorts of things. But if you look at some of their core principles, um, it's to propose, not impose. Um, and they have seven core principles. And then one of their most famous axioms or one that speaks to me is para todos todo, para nosotros nada. So everything for everyone, and this to me is the key part, nothing for us. And that's not to say we're not deserving or we're lowly, and, but that nothing for us basically says, there's appetites to me we're willing to kind of engage in this redemptive sacrifice whilst being one of the most marginalized groups in Mexico as well as actively targeted by the state. And to me, kind of that revolutionary humility, which I think, and everything for everyone, it's just sort of a politics of compassion, ends up creating social relations that, com that, that enable communities as well as a society to depart from sort of the tension and uh, violence and alpha male posturing. Now, it's of course not a utopia. I don't want to romanticize the movement too much. Um, but that centering to me of humility, and that's not to be, that's not to say they're modest or timid or lowly or have their head down because I mean, they have an army and took up, they engaged in rebellion against the state. Um, and then two, they sort of had an internal, uh, the first rebellion was in 1993, the women sort of told the men to get their shit together and we need to rethink <laughs> our generations. And I think there's lessons to, to, to learn there. So they very much recognize, and they'll sort of talk about in their communiques, this is, they'll refer to 500 years ago. So they're very much foreground, basically like the coloniality of modernity. But then, too, they also very, very explicitly sort of, I mean, on January 1st, I'd encourage the listeners to read the January 1st, they released very short declaration for life, January 1st this year. And it, and it doesn't pull punches, and it very much comes out and basically sort of says, here's maybe charting a course towards a sustainable and just future. When, if, I mean, if we swing back, circle back to kind of uh, the flashpoint violence that's taking place, um, in the United States, it's effectively, what about collective introspection, committed examination of conscious? And to me, that's incumbent upon in the first demographic group that needs to do that is white folks, white settlers in the States, in which we foreground, what does it mean to compose a redemption song together? And what is our role in that? And what's an appropriate response to things that we feel we're being wronged by? And then it's effectively, if we're foregrounding humility in that diagnosis, I think we're, we might be able to go in a different direction than the explicit racial violence and gendered hierarchies and ongoing mass alienation that continues to define settler colonial United States. Levi, that was absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for kicking off season 12 with that brilliant analysis. So much food for thought, so much to take away and actually quite a lot of positive things, I think. Super positive. Seeing that 13 yeah. days into 2021, I thought the world was going to end. Boom. That's, that's, that's giving me some hope there. Thank you so much, Levi, for joining us. And listeners, as ever, thank you so much for your support. Patrons, there's another episode for you now. Yeah, and we'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 